Welcome to the Always Evolving Podcast. This is a podcast for those committed to always learning, always growing, always evolving into greater, more expansive versions of themselves. It's about living the life you want to live, a life most only dream about. Let's explore the possibilities together. I'm your host, Erica Boucher. I'm here again with Dr. Vivian Vega, an infectious disease specialist and good friend of mine who I know and trust implicitly. I feel like with all of the conflicting information that's floating around out there right now, I feel very uh, blessed and grateful to know you because I feel like I know I'm getting the truth when I talk to you. And there's a lot of there's a lot of conflicting opinions out there. Even people are even questioning the CDC. People are questioning Dr. Fauci. Everything has been called into question. And I think people just really don't know what to believe. This is why we did our first interview back in May. So the first time I interviewed you was back in May. And I said, okay, let's sift through some of the confusion and tell me the truth on COVID, what we're really dealing with. And it was wonderful because you were very candid. And I walked away from that interview feeling like I had a pretty good handle on what we knew at the time. Of course, that was back in May. And now here it is October, almost five months later since we did that interview. And a lot has changed. So the first thing I want to ask you is, what do we know now that we didn't know a few months ago about COVID. Yeah, so thank you for having me, Erica. That, that, thank you for the introduction. I, I, before I answer the question, one of the things you touched on was number one, our interview from before. And yes, there's a, a lot of things have happened since. Unfortunately, some of the things that were happening then haven't changed much, right? There's still, a lot of uh, misinformation being spread from our leadership. That is one of the things that have has gotten us into the mess that we're in. I think we could have been in a lot in a much better position than we are right now if we would have done things. I think we spoke back in May, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and at that time we were, the the nation was sort of preparing to reopen the economy. Let's start, so let's start with that. I mean, we started to reopen the economy and there was not a specified sort of approach, a consistent approach from the top, from the federal aspect to the states. And, And this isn't a political discussion. These are just facts. These are not opinions. This is just what happened. So starting with any time there was quarantine or isolation measures that were instituted, they were instituted late, they were inconsistent. There was really no effort to enforce them. It was all over the place. And it wasn't even necessarily a Republican versus Democrat governor. It was more of a competence thing and who believed more in the science and who didn't and who wasn't more willing to follow it and who wasn't. Even our uh, physical distancing has been pretty lackadaisical throughout, um, inadequate to say the least. Uh, Mm -hmm. 
But back in May, right, the, one of the key things that happened is that we reopened and we had not achieved any of the uh, measures that, we, that our experts were recommending. For example, most countries didn't reopen until the guidance stated 10,000 cases a day. We were still reporting 20 to 30 to over 30,000 cases a day back in May. And then fast forward to what happened in the summer where, I mean, we reached, we reached cases into the 50, 60, 70,000 cases a day being, new cases a day being reported in the U.S. And how do you control an, a, an epidemic, a pandemic? How do you control an outbreak? You test frequently, right? Our testing was an issue from the start. You identify cases. You isolate them and you do contact tracing for those so that you can stop any uh, you can isolate then any other persons that could have potentially been exposed by the by the case by the target case when you're having 10 to 20 to even 30,000 cases a day that strategy may be um, doable when you're reporting 50 60,000 new cases a day there's no way to do contact tracing on that many people. We do not have those resources in any mm -hmm. way. Um, so that's, that's sort of a background into what ha what has happened, right? We just never achieved the metrics that were set forth. So the, the way to think about this, I don't think there's any question in anyone's mind that everyone, no matter what your politics are, wants to see the country do well, wants kids to go back to school, wants the economy to reopen. But you can't do all of it at once if you're not achieving your measures. You can't not follow the rules, not change our behavior, not do the things that we've been asked to do as individuals and then collectively, and then expect that uh, we're going to magically be able to open the economy. We haven't met our, our numbers consistently, but we've moved on to a phase three without a mask mandate. I mean, what we want to achieve and what we're doing to achieve it aren't even talking to each other. But as far as what we know now, I mean, one of the things that, I, that we, didn't, we weren't sure about when we talked about it now, I would say that one of the main things is, that we found out is the virus doesn't care about the seasons. It, doesn't, it, it's not, it wasn't killed by heat, right? Uh, it, it wasn't susceptible to, U, to UV. Uh, the hot weather didn't stop. In fact, we saw that we had the biggest numbers of cases we had since the beginning of this. Uh, we found out that it transmits itself very efficiently, a lot more efficiently than we thought. And uh, what was going to happen in sending kids, uh, but more specifically, really uh, young adults, high school and college students back to school was some pretty massive outbreaks that then spilled over into the community. So yeah so it seems like the numbers are and have been pretty out of control like they it seems like they've gotten to a level they never should have gotten to and we still haven't gotten it under control and yet we're just throwing the gates wide open with no restrictions or regulations and it, it doesn't seem like it's in the best interest for the economy or for people's health but um but it, i guess that is what it is. That's the situation that we're dealing with. I guess my next question is, with regards to the statistics, 
what kind of numbers are you seeing? Because at one point I heard that the CDC, that the, the cases were not being reported to the CDC anymore. It was being reported directly to the White House. I don't know what's true. I don't know if that's accurate or not. But do you feel as a, a doctor in the field, in the trenches, do you feel like you have at, access to adequate and truthful information? I'll say the, the scientists, the epidemiologists, the people that have dedicated their lives to this, um, I trust their numbers. I trust what they're giving us. Uh, there's a lot of people uh, going through great uh, extremes to be able to report the numbers. Anytime you get um, any politicians involved, that's where I feel like the numbers can, can sometimes be uh, played with, uh, for lack of a better word, to sort of fit more of their agenda. Us healthcare professionals, epidemiologists, we don't have any skin in the game. Uh, we just want the numbers so that we can make better health, uh, decisions for our hospitals, for our uh, counties, for our states. It's kind of hard to answer the question. I think that for the most part, we have the, the, the most accurate numbers because there are still a lot of scientists, experts, epidemiologists, and people that work for these health departments that work very hard and have dedicated their whole entire lives to this and are still trying to give us the most accurate numbers possible. What are the percentages of, I guess I'm trying to get a, a more clear understanding because for the longest time, and I think maybe still now, there's some argument that this is just like the flu. How is this not like the flu? Yeah, so the, the mortality rate for uh, COVID is higher than, than our traditional numbers for the flu. Uh, granted, there's a lot of different types of flu and a lot of different flu uh, epidemics and pandemics. So comparing it to the 1918 flu is, is, not, is not the same as comparing it to some of the more common flu strains that we deal with on a yearly basis. So generally speaking, mortality from COVID is much higher than our average flu. Can you assign a percentage to that? Like it's, it's this yeah. much? So, so some, of the, um, some of the percent rates, the problem with the percent rate as a percentage, like mortality, fatality rates, um, there's so many things that go into that. For example, you know, it's all about, it's numerator and denominator, right? So it has to do with how, how many total cases we're diagnosing. So countries that have more testing are going to have more um, a total number of cases that we're identifying, especially those asymptomatics. Also, in the beginning of the pandemic, there was a lot of people that were likely dying of COVID, but it wasn't necessarily reported of as COVID because we weren't diagnosing people. We didn't have the test capacity. We didn't have a lot of the things that we need to make those calls. Um, so this is also a new, a new disease. Um, and we have a lot of... Um, we don't have people vaccinated in the community. Like if we try to compare it to the flu, um, the flu, we've had it, we know it, it's been around for a while. At least 50 to 60% of people get vaccinated. So we're, we're much more protected. A lot of us have already seen it in some way or form, whether through vaccination or from previous infections. Um, so, so you can't compare a new virus to an old virus in that sense um, for those reasons. But as a whole, COVID does seem to be killing more people than influenza if you, if you go head to head. 
as of now. And the mortality rate for COVID has ranged anywhere from one to 15%, depending on what countries. Um, so, so I think the best way to, to, to answer that question is to say that it does seem to be deadlier. Uh, you're more likely to die from COVID than flu for all of those reasons from the numbers that we're seeing now. Okay, and so knowing what we know now versus what we knew when we spoke back in May, who is at who is most at risk? Are we still talking seniors or has anything changed? Because it seems like you're hearing stories about younger people. Absolutely, and the high-risk groups continue to be the same high-risk groups as far as who is more likely to die if you get COVID, and that's still your older patients Patients, older patients with comorbid conditions like high blood pressure, uh, COPD, lung, like lung issues, cardiovascular disease is a big one. Uh, high, I would say high blood pressure and cardiovascular disease are some of the main ones. Obesity is a big risk factor for getting complications and doing worse with COVID. Um, uh, any kind of other immunosuppression like cancer patients uh, that already you're kind of starting with a weak immune system. So you're gonna be more, uh, more high risk. So any younger patient that has any of those things, even if you're a young patient, but you have any of those things, you're also gonna be at high risk. And then the other thing we're seeing is young people getting sick from it that really didn't have, you wouldn't have predicted would, have, would, would be getting this sick from it. They, they, they don't have any of these conditions and we really don't have a good understanding as to why. Uh, that is happening. Same thing with children. Who's developing this, this inflammatory syndrome? Which kids are going to be developing and that can potentially die from it? We still, those are the, that's the information that is still, still don't completely have. But are young people out of the woods? Can, can are you not going to get sick from it and, and die from it? That, that's not true. We've seen plenty of young people that get really sick from it and don't do well. Is the mortality, uh, your chances of, of dying from it much lower than if you're an older person with cardiovascular disease and, and high blood pressure? Yes, it is much lower, but that doesn't mean you're completely safe. It's not a get out of jail free card. It's not a get out of jail free. And not to mention the, the most obvious thing, right? As living in, a, in the collective society that we live in, I talked about new things that we, we've seen, right? We've seen these, these outbreaks in colleges, universities, and even high school students. Uh, those are spilling over into the community. You're, you know, you bring it back to your uh, parents, to your grandparents, to the people you work with, to the people that you interact with. It, it's, it's, nobody uh, gets a gel out of free card, not in, in get acquiring it, getting sick from it, or, or playing a role in, in the potential death of somebody else. Even within those high-risk groups, I'll tell you from my own experience, it is very unpredictable at times who is going to do well and who is not. Mm. And we, we haven't quite figured out that, that part of it yet. What, there are things that we know for sure. The earlier that you're diagnosed, the earlier that treatment is started, of course, people are going to do better. What about, I know when we spoke back in, in May at the time, it was not believed that COVID was spread through um, the air, but that, that it was spread yeah. more through droplets. But that's changed, right? So I, I wouldn't say that it has necessarily changed. So, so the way I like to explain it is 
the main route of transmission for COVID is still what we call droplets, right? And, and when you learn about droplets and, and aerosols and medical school or, or wherever, um, droplets are your sort of larger, um, more dense secretions, right? When you cough, when you talk, when you sneeze, especially uh, when you're within six feet of a person, so in close contact with a person. And they're, because of their larger size, they kind of fall to the ground faster. And that's why the six feet and, and the close contact matters more. Mm-hmm. Aerosols are these smaller particles because they're smaller, they kind of dry quicker and they, can, they don't fall as quickly. So they can linger in the air for longer Uh, sometimes hours to longer. And what we've known since the very beginning about COVID is that there are certain things that can can make these particles into aerosols. So for example, at the hospital, we, we call these, there's aerosol generating procedures. So we have a series of things that we've known all along that if a patient's undergoing any kind of these aerosol generating procedures, like an intubation, for example, or if you're giving them CPAP, something that can cause these secretions to become aerosolized. That is something that we've known all along. What happened with the CDC, there's, there has been more reports that uh, they've been seeing with the epidemiology of these sort of super spreader events. So mm-hmm. outbreaks that were caused by like the choir practice where one person infected a, a ton of other people. Because usually the droplets, right? One infected person will infect one other person, two uh, tops, right? If, if they live in the same household, especially, but usually just one other person. These super spreader events is when one person infects eight, nine, 10 people, right? Or more. And these super spreader events is because it, they're, it's a more forceful thing. So they were singing or screaming or, whatever the case may be, in, a, in an enclosed space that, right, so with very poor ventilation. So if you put all of those, these things together, these so-called particles that we uh, are mostly droplets can become aerosolized. So, so that's, that was updated by the CDC th- just this Monday, you know, and, and that, that was another thing. There are so many things that are contributing to just general mistrust in, in, in our agencies. I mean, the, the CDC is, is legendary. I mean, when I was going to medical school, I, I, we wanted to be in the CDC. We wanted to go and, and stop outbreaks in, in, out in the middle of nowhere and learn about new, new diseases and identify, the, and, and they're like the CIA of, of, of medicine. And man, so many of our agencies, it, it, it's so unfortunate to see how, um, sort of have fallen prey to, to, the, to the armhole of Washington. It almost seems like they're being undermined. Absolutely, and, and, and sort of pushed around and bullied a little bit, pressured for sure in private and in public, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we've seen the tweets and we've seen, um, yeah. and, and that's not to say that they haven't made any mistakes. I'm not saying that there haven't been any mistakes like the, posting and then removing, that was an administrative mistake. That was, 
you know, nobody's trying to hide that. That, that was uh, that administrative error. It's, it, it was, it was a, a bad mistake, especially at a time when they are under a lot of scrutiny. And, uh, right, right, right. It led to, to further public mistrust and not a good combination. But that's not to say that, that's not to say that these people, um, I mean, these are world-renowned scientists. It's not just the U.S., right? The CDC is the best and they're the best in the world. Their, their ex expertise and response to crisis is crucial to everything that we do and everything, everywhere we want to get to. So it, it's been very unfortunate to watch. Um, yeah. But what you were alluding to of public experts being undermined in public I mean, that trickles down to all of us. Uh, that affects all of us. It affects all the people in the trenches. It affects all the frontline workers, everyone that, um, that knows all the hard work that uh, these people, again, that have dedicated their lives to and that we know we trust and we trust their work and we trust their science. Mm -hmm. The last thing we really need to be dealing with right now in the middle of a pandemic is, is this... Uh, um, how do I want to put this? Causing people to second guess or doubt the scientists and the doctors. And, and that's why I feel so grateful to know you and to be able to send you a text and ask you a question because I feel like I'm lucky in that way that I have access to somebody that I know I'm getting the straight up answer from. Yeah. And, and, you know, to add to that, I mean, I, I'm also very happy to have this opportunity because uh, I think it's important. I think it's important to talk about. It. I think it's important to answer people's questions for people to, to, to be informed, especially, you know, we're, we're heading into by into, into what most experts are calling the worst fall that the U S has seen in decades. Mm. Um, and combine that with what I've, I've been calling this pandemic fatigue. I mean, it, it, people are over it, man. They don't, they're, they're done. They, they're tired. They're over it. They want to send their kids back to school. They they don't want to deal with homeschooling, and and it's not just that. It's it's you know they want to go out. They want to do things, and um, it's uh, it's a, not a good combination. It's important to get the message out, and it's important to, to kind of um, try to re-energize everyone. And and more than anything, honestly, say, listen, we've come this far. Um, we are this much closer than we were when we talked in May about a, uh, having a vaccine, along with other measures that can help us uh, get out of this mess a little faster. Uh, we're that much closer to that. And I think if we can just hang tight, continue to, to, to do our masking and to, to do our part, um, the, the quicker we, we everybody gets their head in the game, so we can get out to work. Yeah. yeah but so, um, so quick question with backing up a little bit to the, to the aerosolization of the, mm -hmm. of COVID. How does that affect, like, for example, if you, if you go into a hotel room where the person that was there previous or even the housekeeper has COVID, does it get into the air conditioning vents? And like, for example, we, we have taken a couple of, we've taken a section of our house and we have, turned it into a mother-in-law suite with its own private entrance and have been looking into renting it out, whether it's as an Airbnb or to a full-time renter, kind of a little one-bedroom studio apartment. And, but, but 
it shares the same air conditioning unit as we do in the rest of the house. And the question we were both, Brian and I were looking at each other like, do we have to worry about if that person has COVID, do we have to worry about that getting into the AC ducts and into the rest of the house? So how much of a concern is something like that? Staying at hotel rooms, going into spaces where the previous person might've had COVID. Yeah, so, so I'll start by saying that we don't necessarily have all of the data on that finalized. Um, there's still a lot of ongoing studies on that. We do know that is a very, very small percentage of infections that, that happen via this aerosol, you know, outside of, and, and by small, I say, I, I mean, the predominant mode of transmission is still these droplets. Okay. Um, as far as sharing, like apartment complexes and, and buildings that share air conditioning, there has not been a lot of evidence suggesting that that, that is a concern. Okay. Uh, most of the evidence is just points to these, these super spreader events where um, the combination of being in the same room together with poor ventilation in enclosed quarters with a lot of people has, has led to these super spreader events where a lot of people get contagious. Mm -hmm. Some of the more classic diseases that, that are known to transmit themselves via the, this airborne route have what we call very high attack rates. So attack, and, and that means that one person can infect like 18 to 20 people in a short period of time. That's like measles, for example. Um, and we just haven't seen that with COVID outside of these super spreader events. Okay, so the super spreader events, you said closed in spaces, lack of ventilation. What about these large gatherings that are happening outside, like the Sturgis bike rally? And I think they're getting ready to have bike week here in Daytona. So that's yeah. still also a concern? Yeah, so anytime that you have a lot of people close together with no masks, Mm -hmm. it's still a concern, right? Because if somebody's talking to you and you're not, and you're, everyone's much less like, like think of a concert, right? I mean, you're much less than six feet apart from each other. You're still all hanging out together. You're still talking, singing, whatever the case may be. Um, even if you're outside, you're still bunched up together in large numbers. Okay, so still the same things apply. Wear masks, socially distance, wash your hands often. Um, yeah, and we've been, we've been, this is kind of silly, but we've been trying to uh, refer to it as physical distancing. Uh, we're trying to kind of spread the, this, you know, because, because it, and, and you talk about this all the time, right? Um, this, this, this social distancing is killing people. And, and we can still remain socially connected via our modes of communication, Zoom, phone, um, you know, video chats, w whatever the case may be. Um, you know, so long as we're physically distanced, but the social part of it is so important to people that, you know, we're trying to kind of reframe some of our, some of our, um, I think that's wise. Exactly. Yeah. People are going to the holidays thinking, wow, what is this going to look like? Okay. So do we know anything more about herd immunity? Like, is, is there still a hope that we will get to a point where that will happen? Do we know that once you have COVID, you're less likely to get it again? Or is it like the flu where there's different strains and it might just keep circling through every year. What do we know about, about immunity with regards to COVID? 
Yeah, so so a lot of information still missing on that. Some of the inf- the data on that is still not complete. A lot of it has to do with the fact that we haven't really been had we haven't really had this virus circulating for a year yet. Uh, not in the U.S. Um, we're not not we're close to to having it been circulating a year in the in the world. But the bottom line is that we do not know if once you get infected, so let's talk about natural immunity. Once you get infected, are you, how long are you immune for? So you do develop some immunity and some protection. We just don't know for how long that immunity lasts. Gotcha. Uh, There's some evidence that suggests if you don't get really sick, if you just have like an upper respiratory infection from it, you it's just like your common cold where you may have immunity for six, seven, eight, nine months, maybe less. Um, if you get a more systemic illness from it or more complicated, severe illness from it, then maybe that immunity is more long lasting because then all your organs, everything's involved and you develop a more long lasting immunity. All those things are being studied. There's, there's a lot of studies suggesting that yes, we do develop some immunity. The, the question is for how long? I would say that most of us in the medical, in the medical community are, are optimistic that either through the vaccine or through natural immunity, immunity, we're concentrating more on the vaccine, right? Because there's no way, like for, for us, so let me back up to the herd immunity. For us to achieve herd immunity, we're talking about, granted, this is different for every disease. Every disease is, is a little different. I mentioned the example of measles. So it depends how efficiently they spread, right? But let's let's talk about COVID. What experts are estimating in the US is that we would need at least 70% of the population. So that's what more than like 200 million people would have to have recovered from COVID to be able to really halt this epidemic by herd immunity uh, from natural immunity, right? So what we're trying to, what we, the, the point of the vaccine is trying to achieve that 70% with a combination of the vaccine and some natural immunity, which again, so what we have a total of uh, over 7 million people in the U.S. that have been infected since March mm-hmm. or that, you know, that uh, at least since when we started reporting infections, we had COVID in the U.S. much earlier than March, but so 7 million people think about how long it would take us to achieve the 70% through natural immunity forever. It, it seems unattainable, uh, especially if, if we're having to do this every year, right? Right. So um, this is where the vaccine comes into play. So we would need to have uh, sort of supplement with the vaccine, have an effective vaccine that can try, that can help us get to that, to that 70%. Well, I can tell you, I won't be taking a vaccine until you tell me that it's okay. <laughs> until you say, Go ahead. This is the one I trust it because. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and that's the other thing, you know, I feel like we're, we're all trying to, from, from, from the medical community, we're all trying to do some, some uh, damage control around all of this nonsense that's been happening all around for, you know, not to get into the details, but absolutely. I mean, you know, I, I, I just listened to Dr. Fauci in one of his uh, JAMA so Journal of American Medical Association interviews go on and on and on about the process for approving a vaccine. And the reason he did that is because he wants people to know 
how many independent agencies evaluate this process. So once a company uh, has produced a vaccine, it has passed all the phase three clinical trials, it's considered safe, it's evaluated by several independent vaccine boards, um, independent statisticians, another an advisory group, advisory committee to the FDA. There's a lot of data and safety monitoring boards that are independent and not related to the government and not related to that company. So, and the reason he's doing that is because he knows and we all know what's, ha what's been happening. And if you combine our behaviors not really being up to par, the guidance not being followed, and then people not getting vaccinated, we're never gonna get out of this mess, right? I mean, right. so absolutely. I, I think even myself, uh, if you were to ask me about the vaccine a month ago with everything that was happening and the FDA and, and, and some of the uh, pressures and things that were happening, I would have, I would have also been in that, in, in, in this group of let's just see what happens. Um, I feel a lot better about it now uh, after a lot of more public health experts, scientists, the heads of these companies, um, even the, the director of the FDA, everyone else surrounding it, um, sort of coming forward and saying, no one has control over our vaccine timeline. It's not going to be given to offered to the public until it's absolutely ready. And these are all the things that we're doing to ensure that. The political timeline is not going to make this happen any faster. <laughs> and, and it's not, you know, and there were some, some, some real concerns out there. I mean, like I said, beginning of September, I mean, when, when there was a lot of talk about trying to push this out and start giving it to people by November 1st, um, you know, thankfully all that has seized and we're on a timeline that makes a lot more sense as far as knowing when the phase three clinical trials started and when we would have enough safety and efficacy data to start giving it to people. It just didn't, necessarily go with with the timeline that was provided by some of the administration officials so you said something about the earlier that it's detected and treatment has start, is started the better off people are so that leads me to believe that there is a treatment protocol that is having some results yeah so this may be a good time to to talk about the best possible case scenario not available to to the average american but yet showing us how advanced we are in our science and the treatment of this disease so let's take president trump mm -hmm. um they are telling us that they are testing daily right they're supposed to be receiving getting tested daily at the white house sometimes twice a day according to some sources um, but, you know, not to get into the details of that, the point of that is, so you would think this, if you were to become infected, this is the best case scenario, earliest possible time to identify disease, right? You had a negative test yesterday, you have a positive one today. So that's not available to anyone. Let's say you pick it up on day one, uh, before the patient even becomes symptomatic, right? Most people don't even think to go to the hospital after they've been uh, feeling crummy for 
two to three days and then they start to feel even worse and then and then their wife or significant other says i think you should you need to go in right so what we're seeing in real life in the hospital is people presenting a week or two into their disease so if you present early on uh, president trump re received a new product that is still in in phase three clinical trials that is not available to the to the public you know, from the company Regeneron. So these are mm -hmm. antibodies uh, that are specific to, you know, not to get into all the, the boring details about it, but there's a protein that the virus uses to enter the human cell. These antibodies block that protein. So it prevents the virus from entering the cell. It's a little bit more complicated than that, but just to keep it simple. Mm -hmm. Then we have a second antiviral, so the second antiviral that he received, it's called remdesivir. That we do have available to our patients. Now, although it was under very strict criteria, it was under an emergency use, and to qualify for it, the patient ha has had to meet a lot of different criteria, including their oxygen saturation had to be below a certain That particular drug blocks a little bit later in the course of the virus, which is now the virus enters the cell, it has to it has to reproduce, replicate itself inside the human cell. It blocks that part, right? So this is called an antiviral. And then later on in the disease, if people get sicker, requiring more oxygen, et cetera, et cetera, that's when we typically give this dexamethasone. Stephen Colbert referred to it as uh, the uh, the Scrabble word to win all Scrabbles. I saw that. <laughs> so, so he received all three of those drugs. So, 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 so if I had to, if I could, number one, get my patients that early on and have all these things available for them, where you're completely stopping viral replication, you're blocking viral replication, and then you're giving them the the other best drug that we have out there because the dexamethasone was has shown the best results so far of anything else that we've been giving to patients. Um, the chances of you doing well are really good. Mm. Um, so, so that's what I meant by catching everything early on, right? Whereas, for example, if you've been sick at home for five, seven, 10 days, people tend to get really sick on the second week of illness. They may have the fevers, they may have like, you know, feeling the flu-like symptoms and feeling crummy, but they try to suck it up at home. They start to get really sick on the second week of, of illness. By that time, the virus has already replicated, you know, sort of out of control in your body. Yeah, that makes sense. So, so it doesn't- Now you're up. fighting an uphill battle. Yeah, now you're already behind the eight ball, exactly. Okay, all right. Well, uh, that's good to know. So if anyone, has any reason to believe they are, you know, if they're getting sick, they're having any kind of symptoms, that's a good time to go ahead and go into the clinic and get tested. And because you could be, you could catch it early. Absolutely. And if, you know, the, the guidance on, on the asymptomatic testing keeps changing back and forth, and that has a lot to do with the resources and trying to save tests for the people that are really sick. But if you do have access, if we, if, if anybody does have access to it, and you know that maybe you're a contact of a case, Mm -hmm. um, you know, trying to get tested early, as early as possible, or, or the moment you notice anything is definitely in your best interest. 
Okay. All right. Last question. What, so if, if I go to the health food store and I want to pick up supplements or what can I do to boost my immunity so that I'm in the best possible shape to fight it if I am exposed to it? So like what, vitamin C, vitamin D, what, what would you suggest to anybody that yeah. they should be doing just as a preventative to keep themselves healthiest right now? Sure, absolutely. And actually, this will be a good time to quickly plug, plug uh, for childhood immunizations. Get your kids vaccinated. Mm. Um, you know, don't forget about it, especially heading into the fall. Also, flu vaccine. Get your flu vaccine. Um, you know, let's, let's try to combat these two illnesses so that we don't overwhelm the, the healthcare system. Mm -hmm. As far as pre uh, prevention stuff, so supplements, um, immune strengthening stra strategies, so to speak. So vitamin C, always good, has always shown to prevent viral, bacterial infections, et cetera. It can also shorten the duration. Vitamin D is very important. I would recommend taking uh, vitamin D uh, supplements during this time, especially if you're not getting out in the sun too much, especially people that live in cold weather. Um, zinc, also a long history of, of being beneficial to fighting viral infections. Um, even like raw honey, uh, raw honey has a lot of antioxidant, anti-inflammation properties. It can kind of strengthen your, your mucous membranes, right? Nose and mouth, which is where this virus enters through garlic, probiotics, things like that. All those things are beneficial. I would highly recommend it. The most important thing, honestly, is eating healthy, which that's how you get most of these vitamins. Um, trying to exercise regularly. If you smoke, Quitting smoking is, if, the, if there was a time you should think about quitting smoking, you know, COVID is the time. And I have a lot of friends uh, and family members, even my brother, my brother quit smoking with COVID. Um, you know, getting sleep, all the things that you usually, you know, we emphasize for everything else. Um, but, but as far as supplements, those would be my, my more specific recommendations. Wonderful. Well, this is great. Thank you so much for devoting the time to this. I know how busy you are with everything that you've got going on. And so I really appreciate you taking the time to do this again as a follow-up to what we did five months ago. I can't believe it's already been five months. Yeah, so. absolutely. And, and, you know, knowing that, that we're, we're wrapping up, you know, one of the main things, and, and you had asked me this, I don't think we asked that we, I think we, we talked about it outside of the interview, but, um, in the beginning, at the beginning, we, I wanted to emphasize, you know, pandemic fatigue, heading into the fall, heading into a, a, a very concerning potential fall of, of, of spike of infections. But um, people hearing for the last week that COVID is no big deal, that COVID is, is not a big deal, that don't be afraid of it, don't be afraid of it. Yeah, if you have access to all those things I just described at the, you know, the, at the moment of, you know, hour one onset of, of illness, sure, maybe it's no big deal. Everyone else, uh, the average American, it is a big deal. Please continue to, to, to mask, continue to encourage masking among yourself, your, your, your family members, and to follow all these, follow physical isolation. And let's hang in there until we get to, to, to this vaccine and we can start to do, us, do this all together. But um, from somebody in, in, in the front lines um, who has seen people suffer tremendously, even, 
family members, I mean, I've had family members, Erica, that they, week three and four of their family member being sick, intubated in the hospital on a ventilator, they, they don't, they don't even want to hear from you anymore. They're too much. They, they, all the ups and downs and, and I'd rather not know. Just, just tell me, tell me at the end. I don't want to know that he's doing better today and worse today and better today and worse today. Um, it, it's, it's not pretty. Oh, and for so people, do you, yeah. Sorry to interrupt you. Do you, so, um, this is a, this is probably a, a lot of, um, prediction, but do you think the president is out of the woods? I think he has the, all the, all the necessary steps were taken to give him the best possible scenario for him to be out of the woods. Let's just put it that way. Okay. Uh, statistically speaking, uh, most people get, there's a lot of patients that, they're, they're, not a lot, let's say there's a good number of patients where they improve initially and then they get sick again. And a lot of people, you know, there's, there's a part of COVID, it's called the hyperinflammatory syndrome. And that generally happens in the second week of illness. So mm -hmm. I don't tell anybody they're out of the woods until they're well beyond that second week of illness. Gotcha. And we but, really don't know. We don't know when he was. And, and that's the thing. Exactly. We, we, we don't know when he was diagnosed. They won't, they won't release when he last tested negative, which is very interesting. Yeah. <laughs> to say the least. Um, they did release the fact that he is antibody positive, which it usually takes your body uh, at m the very, very least seven, 10 days, but up to 14 days to make antibodies. So, um, you know, if I had to guess, he was probably sick for a little longer than, than, than what and they're we, telling us. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But, but the point is there's a lot of suffering, a lot of people losing their family members. I mean, we, we, we've seen it, right? I mean, how, we know how many people have died uh, in the U S over 210,000 people have died. And, and, it is a big deal. If, if you don't think that's a big deal, I don't know what you think is a big deal. Because, right. Um, right. A lot of people. And then, and even the, the, the number, the vast numbers, I mean, I, I've had many, 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 many patients that have been hospitalized for three, four, five, six weeks uh, with COVID and their lives will, yeah, they survived, but their lives will never be the same. They can't even walk from their bathroom to their kitchen without getting significantly short of breath. They, you know, we, we have a, a a new term for them, we, they're, they're called the long haulers uh, that are probably going to be battling this disease for a very long time. We've, we've discovered a lot of late manifestations of disease, neurological manifestations, there's even an inflammatory syndrome now associated with it that is similar to what we were seeing in kids. There's so many things that even if you survive, are stuck with you for life. Um, this is no joke and no one should even insinuate that it is so you know I, I will leave it at that yeah yeah thank you so much this is dr vivian vega infectious disease specialist and thank you for giving us the straight truth on covid and where we stand with it now and in october in 2020 here in the united states thank you so much absolutely really thank you thank you for having me i appreciate it and like i said you know maybe we'll do it again maybe uh, anything uh, that needs to be clarified or corrected i'll have an opportunity at that time yeah let's see where we are with this in another five or six months let's pray let's pray that it's that things are looking much better by then definitely
Thank you for listening to this episode of Always Evolving. Please feel free to share this episode with anyone you think might appreciate it. And if you enjoyed this podcast, let me know by giving me a five-star rating. Until next time, keep learning, keep growing, keep evolving.